So good evening. This is the 13th of December, 2016, and I'm Catherine Argett Singer giving the Dharma talk this evening. So the talk this evening grows out of a, kind of a different talk that I gave the last time that I was here. So this was a few months ago at the end of September. And um, the last time I was here, the center got an email from a group in town here called the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jama'at. And so this is a particular uh, group of Muslims who uh, each year they sponsor a peace conference and they invite speakers from each of six major faiths, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, and Sikh, to speak on a particular topic that they've chosen. And so they were emailing us to see if we could supply the Buddhist speaker. And since Sensei was just going into retreat, uh, she asked me if I would do it. So the topic was that was proposed was uh, justice. Justice, the foundation for lasting peace. And when I heard this topic, I really had my doubts about uh, giving this talk. I wasn't really sure that a Buddhist speaker would have too much to say on this topic. Uh, my thought was that justice, as we usually conceive it, really isn't the central topic that we find in the Buddhist scriptures or, or teachings. And when I say justice, as we usually conceive it, I'm, I'm thinking of a definition of justice that would mean a set of laws or guidelines for ordering society and the application of those laws and guidelines in a fair and systematic way, what we might call good government. So I wasn't sure about this, but as I started to think about it, I thought, well, there might be something that a Buddhist could add to this conversation, if only to sort of look at the rather different approach that Buddhism takes to these problems. So I agreed to it, and that was sort of the guiding idea that I went into uh, the talk with. But one of the interesting things that happened as I was researching the talk was that I actually came across several suttas, several of the early Pali scriptures, where the Buddha does talk quite specifically about politics and about good government and about how to order a just society. So the outline of tonight's talk is, first of all, I'd like to look in general at uh, what I take to be the Buddhist uh, approach to, to politics, which I think overall is not a sort of prescriptive uh, set of laws. I mean, I think that's really, that is a contrast with the Abrahamic religions, that they are a lot more focused on a set of laws that's going to be handed down by God and that's going to be fixed and it's going to be eternal and that tells us how we should um, run our societies, and, and I don't think we find that in Buddhism. But then also I want to spend some time sort of looking at the other side of the coin and um, examining a particular sutta, which I was quite fascinated by when I came across it in preparation for this other talk. And um, I don't know if I'd never read it before or if maybe I just wasn't paying attention because it didn't seem that vital to me, but, but as I really looked at it, I thought it was quite interesting. And I didn't have a chance to go into it in any kind of detail at the other talk, so I thought I'd like to do that tonight. So that would be the second part uh, of the talk. And um, when I 
thought about giving this talk. I, I knew I'd be giving this talk when I came back to New Zealand this time, at, at uh, the end of, what is it now, the beginning, middle of December, well, it's the beginning of December when I got here. Anyhow, I knew I'd be giving this talk, and that was the talk that I had conceived of. But um, in the meanwhile, this thing happened in the United States with felt like kind of a cataclysm there, that we had the election of Donald Trump. And I thought, how can I give a talk on politics and just pretend like that isn't even happening? So um, the last part of the talk will just be kind of taking a look at um, that and if there's anything that we can take from the teachings of the Buddha to, to help us look at, at that situation. And then if I get through this in time, I'd really like to give um, all of us a chance to have some discussion. I think it's a topic that's on people's minds a lot. So, so we'll see if we end up with time for that. And if not, there's always tea time. So one thing I came across in um, looking into this topic was an article by a Theravadan monk, the Venerable K. Sri Dhammananda Mahatera. He's written an article called Buddhism and Politics, which you can find online. And he goes through the various Pali suttas in which the Buddha teaches about justice. And in one, in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha says, when the ruler of a country is just and good, the ministers become just and good. When the ministers are just and good, the higher officials become just and good. When the higher officials are just and good, the rank and file become just and good. And when the rank and files become just and good, the people become just and good. So there's a couple of things that strike me from this formulation. One is just this what, what the modern teacher Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing, just the interdependence of uh, everybody on each other, that what each of us does influences the other. And um, of course, he's focusing here on the king, the, the, uh, the leader being just and good, that that will have an influence on everybody else. But we have to remember that he's teaching in a world that is um, made up of small kingdoms, where you have one leader at the top who's inherited that position by birth. And we're living in a very different world, in a democratic world. So we really have to think of all of us as um, influencing the whole society. And I think he's telling us that what each person does influences all the rest. What I think is even more uh, important here is that um, he isn't telling us here what it means to be just and good or what a just and good government looks like. He isn't setting down a, a set of laws. He's really looking at guiding people to develop themselves as individuals. That everyone has to do their own work and examine their own hearts to discover what is just and good. And really this development of the individual is seen as the root solution in Buddhism. So as this uh, author of this article, Sri Dhammananda says, there's a limit to the extent to which a political system can safeguard the happiness and prosperity of its people. No political system, no matter how ideal it may appear to be, can bring about peace and happiness as long as the people in the system are dominated by greed, hatred, and delusion. 
three poisons. In addition, no matter what political system is adopted, there are certain universal factors which the members of that society will have to experience. The effects of good and bad karma, the lack of real satisfaction or everlasting happiness in a world characterized by dukkha, suffering or unsatisfactoriness, anicca, which is impermanence, and anatta, no self or egolessness. So these are the three dharma seals that the Buddha taught, the characteristics of unenlightened existence. So he continues, the thrust of the Buddha Dhamma is not directed to the creation of new political institutions and establishing political arrangements. Basically, it seeks to approach the problems of society by reforming the individuals constituting that society. So in other words, we could say that rather than emphasizing that peace will flow from a justly ordered society, however true that may be, the Buddha Dhamma focuses instead on the idea that as each individual awakens, to the innate wisdom and compassion of his or her own true nature, then just social interactions and a just society will flow out as a result. So instead of saying justice, foundation of lasting peace, we might say inner peace, foundation of justice. I had an interesting conversation um, over breakfast, those of us who are at the morning sittings and eat breakfast here together. Um, a day or two after I arrived, of course, the conversation had turned to Donald Trump. It should be on everybody's mind, or well, maybe it's fading a little now, but anyhow. Um, and we were talking about whether the election of Trump was indicating, well, I was saying it was indicating people's resistance to change, a fear of change, sort of this um, right-wing kind of racist backlash. And, um, I was talking with Grant, and he was saying, well, people want to change. They're voting this way because they don't like the way, the way uh, things are, and they want to see a change. And he said, um, the only way they can see to make a change is to look outside of themselves, to try to, to change the environment, to try to elect somebody different or do something completely different, rather than looking inward and seeing if the change can be internal. So I probably didn't quote that uh, exactly right. But anyhow, I, I thought that what he was saying was um, was really interesting and right on target and in, in agreement with uh, with what I had read and what, what this author has said. But so to, to, to look at, in a sense, the other side of it, although not entirely, but to look at it from another point of view, I want to go on and take a look at this um, particular sutta. This is the Chakavatsisi Hanada Sutta, which translates as the Lion's Roar Sutta of the Wheel-Turning Monarch. And what this sutta is about is it describes the duties and responsibilities of a wheel-turning monarch. So what is a wheel-turning monarch? Um, a wheel-turning monarch is kind of a mythological uh, Buddhist ideal of a um, ideal world ruler. He's a world ruler and a world conqueror. He lives for hundreds and thousands of years, and the people that he rules over in his kingdom also live for hundreds and thousands of years. That's the lifespan that they have at the time that this person comes into existence. He's possessed of the seven treasures, 
the wheel treasure, the elephant treasure, the horse treasure, jewel treasure, female treasure, householder treasure, and the treasure of advisors. And these treasures seem to be some sort of magical apparitions that accompany him and uh, indicate what a complete and perfect ruler he is and also help him rule. And what he does is he miraculously and nonviolently conquers the whole world, which he then rules in accordance with the Dharma. And this happens in a process that's described in this sutta, where it describes the king, who it says, the king rising from his seat, covering one shoulder with his robe, he took a gold vessel in his left hand, he sprinkled the wheel with his right hand, and he said, may the noble wheel treasure turn, may the noble wheel treasure conquer. And then the wheel turned to the east, and the king followed it with his fourfold army. And in whatever country the wheel stopped, the king took up residence with his fourfold army. And those who opposed him in the eastern region came and said, Come, your majesty, welcome. We are yours, your majesty. Rule us, your majesty. And the king said, Do not take life. Do not take what is not given. Do not commit sexual misconduct. Do not tell lies. Do not drink strong drink. Be moderate in eating. And those who had opposed him in the eastern region became his subjects. So you see what he's saying here is he's, um, I think everyone will recognize those as the first five precepts, the basic lay precepts. That's what he teaches in order to rule his kingdom. And then as the story goes on, the wheel turns to the south and to the west and to the north, and the same thing happens. So he's ruling the people and giving them the precepts in all the different directions. So that's a passage from the sutta, but what I want to do now is just back up to the beginning of the sutta and go through it in order. It's, it's one of the, the longer suttas, so I can't read the whole thing. I won't uh, try to, but I want to sort of give you the, the key bits to it. So going back to the beginning of the sutta now, this is how it starts. Thus have I heard, once the Lord was staying among the Magadans at Matula, then he said, Monks, Lord, they replied. And the Lord said, Monks, be islands unto yourselves, be a refuge unto yourselves, with no other refuge. So I don't know if that line sounds familiar to people, but that's a teaching that occurs in several different suttas, and most familiarly, to me at least, in the um, Mahaparinirvana Sutta, the, the Sutta uh, that tells about the Buddha's last days and last hours, and this is supposed to be the final teaching that he gave to his monks. So it's a very uh, familiar and important teaching that he gave to his monks. Be islands unto yourselves, be a refuge unto yourselves, with no other refuge. And it goes on. And how does a monk dwell as an island unto himself? as a refuge unto himself, with no other refuge, with the Dharma as his island, with the Dharma as his refuge, with no other refuge. Here, a monk, having put, in, having put aside worldly greed and distress, ardent, clearly aware and mindful, abides contemplating body as body. Having put aside worldly greed and distress, ardent, clearly aware and mindful, he abides contemplating feelings as feelings, Having put aside worldly greed and distress, ardent, clearly aware, and mindful, he abides contemplating mind as mind. And having put aside worldly greed and distress, distress, ardent, clearly aware, and mindful, 
Hereby it's contemplating mind objects as mind objects. So this is also another very familiar teaching. This is uh, from the sutta in, in Pali, it's called the Satipatthana Sutta, but uh, it's usually translated as the four foundations of mindfulness or the four applications of mindfulness. This is the basic uh, sutra in which the Buddha teaches the practice of mindfulness. And these are the four things that he uh, teaches mindfulness of. Uh, the body, the feelings, thoughts, and uh, mind objects. So that little bit is quoted. And then he, the Buddha goes on, Keep to your own preserves, monks, to your own ancestral haunts. If you do so, then Mara will find no lodgment, no foothold. It is just by the building up of wholesome state that this merit increases. All right, so he gives that teaching to the monks, and then, without further ado, he goes into this story about King Dalhanemi. He says, once, monks, there was a wheel-turning monarch named Dalhanemi, a righteous monarch of the law, conqueror of the four quarters, who had established the security of his realm and was possessed of the seven treasures. He dwelt having conquered this sea-girt land without stick or sword by the law. And after many hundreds and thousands of years, King Dalhanemi said to a certain man, My good man, whenever you see that the sacred wheel treasure has slipped from its position, report it to me. Yes, sire, the man replied. And after many hundreds and thousands of years, the man saw that the sacred wheel treasure had slipped from its position. Seeing this, he reported the fact to the king. Then King Dalhanemi sent for his eldest son, the crown prince, and he said, My son, the sacred wheel treasure has slipped from its position. And I have heard say that when this happens to a wheel-turning monarch, he has not much longer to live. I have had my fill of human pleasures. Now is the time to seek heavenly pleasures. You, my son, take over control of this ocean-bounded land. I will shave off my hair and beard, don yellow robes, and go forth from the household life into homelessness. So having installed his eldest son in due form as king, he did that, he put on the yellow robes and went forth. And seven days after he had gone forth, the sacred wheel treasure vanished. Then a certain man came to this new king and said, Sire, you should know that the sacred wheel treasure has disappeared. At this, the king was grieved and felt sad. He went to the royal sage and told him the news. And the royal sage said to him, My son, you should not grieve or feel sad at the disappearance of the wheel treasure. The wheel treasure is not an heirloom from your father. So the wheel treasure is not an heirloom from your father. I think this is a really key line here. The sage says to him, now, my son, you must turn yourself into an Aryan wheel turner. So in other words, this isn't just something he can inherit from his father. He's got to see it for himself. He's got to do the work for himself, perfect himself, so that he can become the next wheel turning monarch. And he tells him that if he performs the correct duties, then it's possible that this sacred wheel treasure will, will appear to him also. So the new king asks, but what, sire, is the duty of an Aryan wheel-turning monarch? It is this, my son, yourself depending on the Dhamma, honoring it, revering it, cherishing it, doing homage to it, and venerating it, having the Dhamma as your badge and banner, acknowledging the Dhamma as your master. You should establish guard, ward, and protection according to Dhamma for your own household, your troops, your nobles and vassals, for Brahmins and householders, town and country folk, 
ascetics and Brahmins, for beasts and birds. Let no crime prevail in your kingdom, and to those who are in need, give property. And my son, the recluses and Brahmins, when they approach you, you should question and counter-question them thus. What, Bhante, is wholesome? What is unwholesome? What is blameworthy? What is not blameworthy? What should be associated with? What should not be associated with? Doing what is for our good and happiness for a long time? So again, I think that this is really quite interesting that um, rather than spelling out these answers for this new king and, and giving him a list of uh, laws with which to govern his kingdom, he's instead encouraged to himself speak to the wise men, speak to the Brahmins, and to undertake himself a lifelong investigation into these questions. Not just to talk to them once, but whenever they come, whenever they approach you, he should question and counter-question them in that way he's told. So this new, th new king, the, the son, crown prince, he does all these things. And lo and behold, of course, after he does all these things, the real treasure appears to him. And then he goes out and conquers to the north and the east and the west and the south, as we read about. And then he has a son, and the same thing happens. Well, this happens seven times, okay, so we, <laughs> we don't have to read all that. But um, this, this keeps, everything keeps going along well until we come to the eighth king. Okay, so then a man came to the eighth king, and he said, Sorry, we should know that the sacred wheel treasure has disappeared. At this, the king was grieved and felt sad. But he did not go to the royal sage and ask him about the duties of the wheel-turning monarch. Instead, he ruled the people according to his own ideas. And being so ruled, the people did not prosper so well as they had done under the previous king, who had performed the duties of a wheel-turning monarch. So then the ministers and counselors and all the other advisors, they go to the king and they tell him things aren't going so well because he's not performing the duties of a wheel-turning monarch. And they tell him that they know what those duties are. And so they tell him, ask us, your majesty, and we will tell you. So he asks them, and they give him the same paragraph I read before. Yourself, dependent on the Dhamma, honoring it, revering it, etc., etc. Um, establish guard, ward, and protection for your household, etc., etc. Let no crime prevail, and to those who are in need, give property. Well, the eighth king, he does all those things. He does all, he follows all those guidelines, but he doesn't give property to the needy. He thinks maybe he can skip that one. So as a result, Poverty became right, and with the spread of poverty, a man took what was not given, thus committing what was called theft. They arrested him and brought him before the king, saying, Your Majesty, this man took what was not given, which we call theft. And the king said to him, Is it true that you took what was not given, which is called theft? It is, Your Majesty. Why? Your Majesty, I have nothing to live on. So then the king gave the man some property saying, With this, my good man, you can keep yourself, support your mother and father, keep a wife and children, carry on a business, and make gifts to ascetics and Brahmins, which will promote your spiritual welfare and lead to a happy rebirth with a pleasant result in a heavenly sphere. Very good, your majesty, replied the man. And exactly the same thing happened with the second man. Then people heard that the king was giving away property to those who took what was not given, and they thought, suppose we were to do likewise. 
And then <laughs> another man took what was not given, and they brought him before the king. And uh, same conversation. He tells the king, I have nothing to live on. And then the king thought, if I give property to everybody who takes what is not given, this theft will increase more and more. I had better make an end of him, finish him off once and for all, and cut his head off. So <laughs> now comes the really interesting part, because um, you may think that when he cuts this guy's head off, that's going to reduce crime in the kingdom. But no, hearing about this, people thought, now let us get sharp swords made for us, and then we can take from anybody what is not given, and we will make an end of them, finish them once and for all, and cut off their heads. So having procured some sharp swords, they launched murderous assaults on villages, towns, and cities, and went in for highway robbery, killing their victims by cutting off their heads. So again, we see this, this really um, deep understanding of this interbeing that, that because the king at first is greedy and he's not sharing the property with other people, the whole society starts to unravel. But when he tries to cure that with violence, the whole society becomes violent. So after this violence breaks out, as the sutta goes on, uh, one thing leads to another. So we've all already had killing and we've already had um, theft. And then people get hauled in for theft and uh, then they start to lie to the king and say, no, I didn't take anything. So lying half starts to happen. And so one after the other, the precepts are broken and, and the society starts to unravel. And as the society unravels, the lifespan of the people in the uh, community is reduced with each precept that's broken. So after a while, they only live for 40,000 years. And then they only live for 20,000 years, and then they live for 10,000 years, and so on and so on. Until um, the Buddha says, monks, there will come a time when the children of these people will have a lifespan of only 10 years, and with them, girls will be marriageable at five years old. And for those of a 10-year lifespan, there will come to be a sword interval of seven days, during which they will mistake each other for wild beasts. So the sword interval is just complete violence takes over and they're all killing each other. But basically, a few people sort of hide in the bushes during this whole interval and think that this is not a good thing. And they come together and they think, let us not kill or be killed by anyone. And they see that all this has happened through unwholesome behavior, and they decide to try to start again with wholesome behavior. And so then the whole story starts to reverse itself, and the lifespans get longer and longer and longer until they're living for hundreds or hundreds and thousands of years again. And the Buddha Maitre, the Buddha of the future, comes at that point. And then the Buddha says, monks, be islands unto yourselves. Be a refuge unto yourselves with no other refuge. So this is the end of the sutta. And what we see at the end is he goes back to what he said at the beginning. How does a monk dwell as an island unto himself, as a refuge unto himself, with no other refuge, with Dhamma as his island, with the Dhamma as his refuge, with no other refuge? Here a monk, having put aside worldly greed and distress, ardent, clearly aware and mindful, abides contemplating body as body, abides contemplating feelings as feelings, contemplating mind as mind, and contemplating mind objects as mind objects. Keep to your own preserves, monks, to your own ancestral haunts. When you wander in your proper range, your own ancestral territory, 
You will grow in long life, beauty, pleasure, wealth, and strength. And then he talks a little bit more about those attributes of monks, long life, and so forth. And that's the end of the sutta. So what lessons can we take from this? Um, the importance of the precepts, the importance of social justice, really the, the idea that no one should live in poverty, that the duty of government to redistribute wealth so that everyone has enough to, to live on. So there is some prescriptive stuff in here, but even in this most prescriptive sutta, still we see the same focus on these key ideas, the development of the individual and spiritual development of the individual and, and the interdependence, the, the difference that each individual's development and behavior makes to the society of the whole. But for me, really, the thing that struck me most about the sutta was its structure. That he starts out with this, be an island unto yourself, monks. Keep to your own preserves, monks, to your own ancestral haunts. And then he has this whole story about the king, the, the wheel-turning monarchs. And then he repeats the, what he said to the monks at the beginning. He repeats it at the end. And it is strange. It's a strange structure. And some of the commentators say that it's just three different sutras sort of smashed together and it, it doesn't really belong together as one, as one sutta. But even if that's the case, somebody put it together. So, so someone had some idea in mind to put, these, to put these different pieces together. And the question really came up for me about what was being said by the, by the structure of this thing, by the way that these different elements were combined. Certainly on the surface reading, we might think that the monks are just being told to do their own thing, you know? Monks, you go in the forest and meditate and don't get involved in politics. But then why, if that's the case, does he give this whole long political story in the middle, you know? So I don't think that, I don't think that it's really that simple at all. I think what it comes down to is to interpret what the Buddha's saying when he says, keep to your own preserves, monks, to your own ancestral haunts. Uh, other translations of this I found, wander monks in your proper range, in your proper pasture, your own ancestral territory. So what do we take these preserves to be, these ancestral haunts that the Buddha is referring to? Is it only monks who have ancestral haunts? Seems to me that we each have our own preserves. We each have our own karma, our own body-mind. We each have this present moment. We each have this field in front of us that we have to cultivate to the best of our ability. This is really no different for monks, for kings, or for us. A wheel-turning monarch is born into his particular position, but as we see, even he has to work to make the wheel, the wheel treasure appear. He has to do his own spiritual work. We've been born into a democratic society. We've also been born into a time and place where we're able to hear the Dharma. So what work are we being asked to do? How is it that we keep to our ancestral haunts and cultivate our own pasture? 
Well, that's my segue into the, the last part of the talk, to think about uh, current politics a little bit. And when I tried to think, you know, what, what could I possibly have to say about what's going on in my country, and not just my country, but, but very much uh, Great Britain, Europe, When I tried to think about what I could say, I, I found that um, it kept shifting. One day I, I thought I, I'd say one thing, and then the next day I thought, well, no, I, I, don't, I won't say that. I'll say this other thing. And I realized that it was being very much influenced by whatever the headlines were that day. One day it looked like Donald Trump was appointing just a disastrous person to be head of the EPA. And then the next day, He's talking to Al Gore, but he's saying he's going to support the idea of climate change. You know, so the headlines are kind of bumping back and forth, and I realized that was having a big influence on me in terms of imagining what was happening. And it just really emphasized for me how important it is for us in this kind of situation to, to keep our don't-know mind. We don't really know. We don't really know what's going to happen. It's really important, as uh, Rosie Bowden from Rochester said in, in a letter that he wrote about this um, to the Sangha after the election, that it's really important not to catastrophize, not to spin off into fantasies about what's going to happen, but instead to be ready to respond to what actually arises. We don't know what Trump is going to do, and we don't know how people will respond. The way we're in, in, influenced by the media is another example of this, this interdependence that the, the Buddha talks about. And another way that, that I've observed it in my own lived experience at home is just realizing the extent to which we're so influenced by the people around us and by the environments that we grow up in. I live in western Massachusetts, which is the most dark blue place of the bluest state in, uh, in the United States. I mean, I don't know if, you, if everyone's aware of you know, the, red and, the red and blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the red states are the ones that vote Republican, the blue states are the ones that vote Democratic. And um, the area of the country that I'm living in, as, as, uh, I, as many of us have talked, we said to each other, not only do I not know anybody who's a Trump supporter, I don't even know anybody who knows a Trump supporter. I mean, we're just completely isolated. Like, who are these people? You know, we don't know them. And um, yet, if you lived in another part of the country, that's all you would have around you. And so this would be the environment here, that this guy's good, and he's going to really make a change, and he's going to, to help us. And so I think it's, it's really important to, to realize that, and to realize that there's two things well, the country is very polarized, it has been for a long time, but that's really, in, in a certain sense, just a way of saying that there's more than one thing going on there at once. There's two things going on. There is this conservative, racist backlash that's happening. There's also all this progressive stuff that's happening and that's been happening. You know, we've had an African-American president for eight years, and one state after another is legalizing gay marriage, one state after another is legalizing marijuana. So there's this whole... Uh, Thing that things are changing quite rapidly, and then there's a resistance to that. But both of these things continue to happen. 
And we certainly have to realize that that's nothing new, that there's always been these two different streams going on from the beginning. You know, we sometimes talk about the American experiment, which is this idealistic kind of shining thing, but it's always had this dark, dark shadow side based in materialism and, and racism, slavery, slaughter of indigenous peoples in order to extract the natural resources from the continent in order to make money. So this has always been the basis of American democracy. And so now we see Trump calling out these impulses, these poisons in a new way. But we've always had these forces and we've always had forces in a different direction as well. I guess another thing that, that comes up for me is just the importance of not falling into depression. Of course, when you're depressed, you're depressed, and you just have to say, okay, you're depressed. But, but there is this sort of uh, reaction that, that I've seen in, from a lot of people in the States of sort of, why me? How could this happen to us? How could this possibly happen here? And, it, and it's sort of similar to people being surprised, you know, by sickness, old age, and death, you know, and bad government is sort of like that. It, it does happen. And if you think that, um, you know, if you think of something like what the Tibetan people have gone through, or the people in Syria, or the people in Libya, you know, we're so lucky, and there's no reason that we in the United States or in New Zealand should, should be immune from that government arising, which does happen as a fact of life, which is not a call for resignation. It doesn't mean that we should just stand by while our countries slide toward fascism, but um, just not to, to be so surprised that such a thing could happen or, or to feel that we should have a right to be, to be immune from this. But for me, certainly, and I think for many people in the States, this event has been something of a wake-up call that we really need to find more ways to become politically active, that we can't just sit back, that we do have to start getting more active and uh, various organizations and activist or organizations have really been just overwhelmed in the last weeks with people clamoring to, to join as members. And so, so there is really movement in more than one direction going on in the country. Of course, another site that's been overwhelmed after the election is the site that tells you how to immigrate to Canada. And uh, on a personal level, for me, I've gotten a comment from several people, oh, well, you'll just go to New Zealand. You don't have to worry. You know, which I think is a little naive to think you can go to New Zealand and escape what's going to happen globally. But, but um, for me, certainly, my reaction to the election was not, oh, I'll just go to New Zealand, but really just the opposite of, how can I be going to New Zealand right now? You know, my country may actually need me right now. And with Trump, um, you know, showing every sign that he's going to do everything he can to trash the planet, just an increase in the sort of feelings of guilt about the expenditure of fossil fuels that are required to take me back and forth to New Zealand multiple times a year. 
So those are some things that came up for me immediately, but here I am. And I think that um, just each of us continues to sort of struggle and bumble towards awakening in our own imperfect ways. And I've certainly learned how vitally important it is for me to do this practice and to do this training here and to support this practice and training here. And it just comes back to what the Buddha says, keep to your own preserves, monks, to your own ancestral haunts. What, Bhante, is wholesome? What is unwholesome? What is blameworthy? What is not blameworthy? What should be associated with? What should not be associated with? Doing what is for our good and happiness for a long time? Each of us has to make this investigation for ourselves. So I'm going to wrap up here with a couple more passages. And the first is one of the most familiar and beloved passages from the Buddhist canon, the beginning of the Dhammapada. And it reveals the Buddha's understanding of the law of karma, the law of cause and effect, a world where each of our intentions and each of our actions matter deeply. Whether we're a will-turning monarch, a monk, or a member of a modern democratic society. So this is how the Dhammapada opens. All experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows, as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. He abused me, attacked me, he defeated me, robbed me. For those harboring such thoughts, hatred does not end. He abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not harboring such thoughts, hatred ends. For hatred never ceases through hatred in this world. Through love alone does it cease. This is an eternal law. So I would just add that if we're wanting to function as much as possible from a place of awakening, we have to acknowledge that what happens to us politically or personally is essentially irrelevant. In creating our future and creating our communal future, it's not about how bad things are for us or how bad things look right now but all about what we're doing right now, to tend to our own preserves, both in our formal practice, on the mat, what may feel like our private world, and off the mat in terms of our participation in the social world. These two activities and these two worlds may appear to be quite different, inner and outer, but as the Buddha so clearly teaches, they can't be separated in the end. When we read this passage, speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. Speak or act with a peaceful mind and happiness follows like a never departing shadow. We may understand that the Buddha is speaking of the law of karma in its most obvious sense. In other words, the teaching that we live in an ethical universe, that if we do good, we will reap a good reward. If not in this lifetime, then certainly in a future lifetime. 
But especially from the Mahayana point of view, there's a much more radical way to understand this teaching, that all experience is preceded by mind. The Mahayana teachings on emptiness talk about a mind-created universe, a universe in which the things that appear to us are just that, our own appearances. They take the shape that they do because of where we are at this moment, because of where we are at at this moment. I think maybe uh, the easiest way to understand this, this teaching or an accessible way to understand this is that there's a traditional teaching about drinking from a river. And it says that when human beings drink from a stream, they see water and they taste water. But when the gods, when the devas drink from that stream, they see nectar and they smell and taste the sweetest nectar. But when hungry ghosts come to that stream, they just see a stream of flames. And so if they try to drink, they just get burned. So in this way of looking at things, the world we see, the world that each of us experiences, has no ultimate or final reality of its own. It only appears as it does due to our own individual and collective patterns of thought and action. According to the teachings, we will be reborn endlessly, either through our own ignorance and craving, or else in fulfillment of the bodhisattva vows we've taken. But the world we'll be born into will also be completely empty. A series of appearances, just as this world is, our own appearances, utterly dependent on the karma we have created in the past. So if we don't like this world, if we don't like what is happening to us politically or personally, or we don't like what's happening to others po politically, then it's completely up to us. It's only through our own practice and our own actions that we lay down now that we'll be able to create a Buddha field in the future. So the last little bit I want to read is just words of the Dalai Lama. They come from several years ago, but they've been quoted a lot recently. And the Dalai Lama said, Never give up. No matter what is going on, never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy in your country is spent developing the mind instead of the heart. Be compassionate, not just to your friends, but to everyone. Be compassionate. Work for peace in your heart and in the world. Work for peace, and I say again, never give up. No matter what is happening, no matter what is going on around you, never give up. So I forgot to push my timer right at the beginning, so Adrian, do you want to say whether we have time here for a few questions? Or, I mean, I have questions that written out for break up into groups. I don't know if there's time for that. No, we can't do that. We've got a few minutes before that. Okay, we'll do it that way. <laughs> Questions or remarks? The things I had written out here was to think about just what are our political responsibilities as Buddhists? Are, are they any different than they would be for anybody else? It's just a person of goodwill. And if our practice can help us navigate political issues or anything else that came up for you during the talk.
isn't one of the things for us as Buddhists is being being aware of what we can offer to the mix that is different and we you know we talked about last time before. Um, you know, the in, an emphasis on non-violence, on goodwill, on seeing that even Donald Trump, you know, got the doing what he's doing because he thinks it, it's the best way to relieve his suffering. You know, that it, it yeah, comes out yeah. of this place where we all actually care about relieving our own suffering. And if we can connect with that with another person, then that can transform our relationships. Um, but you know, become always emphasizing that pain can take in on violence. So we do, I think we really do, as, as Buddhists, have something to offer. But then we don't want to attach to our an identity of being a Buddhist because that will just get in the way. Buddhist perspective, but it seems to feel that we need to do the same. Um, it seemed to me, reflecting on um, Brexit and Trump, um, that really I think a, a narrative that um, a progressive liberal movement had believed that this was a a linear process mm, mm -hmm. and that it was about people who were right and people who were wrong, perhaps through <laughs> ignorance or worse. That that um, story wasn't going to serve anymore. Watching the way it backfired in the US as the left hardened itself against what the people who weren't going to vote for it were saying. Mm -hmm. And it seems that the real problem was the inability to even talk across an absolutely artificial divide. I think that's the danger. Yeah, I wonder I... if that's what we have to offer as people who are committed to trying to understand Division and 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 unity, and I think for myself that uh, the people who I agree with politically, but who see themselves in opposition to the people they disagree with, I'm starting to think maybe they're the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I heard a while back um, an academic study. If we needed an academic study to tell us this, but it's good to have it. That um, it was all about that. Uh, the left in the United States, probably other places too, thinks that the Republicans are evil, mm -hmm. and the Republicans think that the Democrats are evil, or that the left wing, you know, I mean, abortion and transgender issues and all this, you know, this is evil, this is like Satan, you know, and then the left thinks the right is evil, racism and um, materialism and trashing the planet is evil, and that this is why people can't talk to each other, because if you go in with that attitude, the conversation is dead before you start. So what we're thinking is it's so urgent now to find what we hold in common yeah. and to open and, and to push the urgency of genuine dialogue you know, across 
but they already become. You know, I would imagine Donald Trump's strategy for, for happiness for people is, is a robust um, economy. You know, where people are rich, like himself. You know, um, and this is his way of trying to make things happen. That's 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 one way of looking at it. You know, as a as sensei said, a, a, a common yearning. You know, underneath that, um, one of the negative aspects we see of Donald Trump, under that would be something probably quite similar to what we want in our, in our own world. Um, and that is some happiness and some, um, some ease. Um, it's the strategies that are in conflict, not so much the underlying um, uh, whatever you want to call it, unless you consider him completely evil. Um, but the other thing, I was really interested in the eighth king because you know, he went off track by not giving to the people. But underneath that, that was he wasn't he didn't he wasn't um, he didn't keep to the um, uh, the structure the form of the of the dharma. You know, he, he thought he knew better, and that's what I thought was underneath that story about maybe his, his intention might have been quite pure. You know, if it was. It wasn't going to be enough to go around, for example. Who knows what he was thinking, but he stepped outside that, that, um, that dharma of, of how things were even, because he thought he knew better. Um, so maybe the story for me was around the self, selfless taking over. Was around what? Selflessness was taking over, so, or he knew better. He didn't dissolve into the dharma. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's tricky because then are we not supposed to think for ourselves? I mean, I think there's a lot of implications in the, in the story that we are supposed to think for ourselves, you know? So, exactly. so it's, it's a fine line there, but yeah. The balance is really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we'll stay here. Yeah, stay here. <laughs> Long enough. <laughs> Okay, thank you.
and urban training deadlines this Friday? Uh, oh, two deadlines this Friday. Um, that we would, it's training, urban training, potentially having, and also the session, if you get any of the 